If you would stand one more time, please. Hebrews chapter 6, our text this morning, Hebrews chapter 6. This morning, the sermon is going to be very similar to what you heard last week for those of you that were here. Um, I'm going to go into detail reviewing what we talked about last week, and then we have a couple of points that we're going to move on to. I gave you a handout this morning that's comprised of about two pages, and my intention is to start doing that every week again. Um, If you'll notice, there's some notes on there that I've put, but there's also Bible verses on there as well. And what I'd like for you to do is use that as a source of study. Um, I don't want to just tell you to do stuff, tell you to do stuff without helping you do that. And the reason I want you to take that home and study it is because I want you to check me out. If there's a question of something that is said in the sermons, I want you to ha- I want you to come to me and say, "Hey, what did you mean if I misunderstood you?" Or let's look at the scripture. And ultimately, what we are going to settle on, folks, is what does the Word of God have to say? I, I have no authority outside of the scripture. I don't want to say anything contrary to the scripture. And so um, that, that's the purpose for that. I, I'm going to try to be as detailed as I can and give you as much information as I possibly can. Let, let's read our text and pray. Chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection. Now, that's not sinless perfection. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands, and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment, and this will we do if God permits. Let's pray. Father, again, I ask you that you would bless our time together this morning. I pray, Father, that you would help me to be clear on what the text of Scripture has to say. Father, I pray that you would give us understanding of what the the, the Scripture has to say. And Father, I pray that you would help us to live our lives in accordance with the Scripture. So I ask that what we do not know that you would teach us, that we do not obey, that you would cause us to obey you. Father, I pray that you would write these things upon the table of our heart, that we would not forget them when we depart. May you be glorified. We praise you and we thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. The author of Hebrews, which the more I read and the more I study, I begin to believe it was the Apostle Paul. Uh, this morning, I, I, uh, I, I just read through the whole book in a, probably about 30 minutes. And towards the end of the book, you kind of get the idea that it might have been the Apostle Paul that wrote this epistle. And so what the author has been doing up to this point is that he has been making the supremacy and preeminency of Christ what he wants the Hebrews to look at. These Hebrews were facing some tribulation uh, that had come about and there was a tendency for them to turn back to their Judaism. There was a tendency for them to go back to their old way of life. And so his, his purpose for writing this letter is to encourage them to continue in the faith. 
what we have seen laid out for us is that He has given what is called an exposition or an explanation of a particular truth that He's trying to relate to them. The very first thing that He's relating to them is that Jesus is the preeminent prophet. He's greater than the prophets that were used to speak to the fathers. He is further preeminent over the angels who God used and basically they are servants at God's disposal. They are those that are, they are ministers for those, uh, verse 1, uh, chapter 114 says, that would inherit eternal life. He goes on to show that Jesus is preeminent over them. And the question that they would have asked themselves is, why is Jesus preeminent? Because the angels don't die and Jesus did die. And he goes to set forth the purpose for Jesus dying. And what we have seen in chapter 5 is that he begins to lay out that Jesus is the preeminent high priest. The high priest that would go into the Holy of Holies to administer the blood of the sacrifice for the, for the nation of Israel once a year. That Jesus is the preeminent high priest and ultimately is the preeminent sacrifice as, those, as the blood of bulls and goats would not save. They could not save. They could not wash away sin. And so he's setting forth this whole idea of the preeminence of Christ. That Christ is first in rank. And as he begins to talk about Melchizedek, he pauses. And if you'll back up to verse 11, he says this. Or or back to verse 10. Called of God, an apostle or a high priest, after the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have many things to say. In other words, this, this subject of Melchizedek and Jesus as high priest is a vast subject. There's a depth to it. He goes on to say, it's hard to, it's many things to say, it's uh, hard to be uttered. In other words, it's difficult to explain and it's difficult for you to understand. And then he says, seeing that you are dull of hearing. What he's talking about the dull of hearing there is that you are slow to obey or you are, or you are lazy to follow in obedience. And so what he does is take, uh, takes from about verse 11 of chapter 5, I think down to verse 13 of chapter 6, and issues this warning or this uh, admonition to, to basically grow in the faith. And, and as you'll see, the, the title uh, that you have on your paper is Principles of Spiritual Growth. Now, we talk about spiritual growth, we talk about spiritual maturity, but many people don't know how to grow. I mean, we think, if you think this morning that this session here, this preaching service here, is enough for your spiritual growth, you are sadly mistaken. And so that's the course that we are on. And what he has done at the end of chapter 5 is start to set forth this foundation. And if you look at, bring your attention back to chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrines of Christ. What this is is the essential truths of Christianity. Basically, this is the the gospel ABCs and 123s. And he says, leaving those principles. Now, that is not an abandoning of those principles. That is not a neglect of those principles. But you see the word is in action. It is moving from one point to another. And the point that he's talking about moving from is the point of initial salvation. 
is the moment that you realize that God had done this tremendous work of salvation in your life and you begin to call upon Him. He's talking about leaving, moving from that point and moving on to spiritual maturity. Notice he says, to let us go on into perfection. Again, this is not sinless perfection that we're talking about here. This is a state of spiritual maturity, which is not a, a, an end point that you ever reach in this life, but it is a continual moving towards that point. Now, we don't reach that, that point until the next life. And so he says, not laying again the foundation and what he sets forth for us at the end of this verse and in chapter and in verse 2 is three foundational doctrines that if we don't get them right, then we will not move on to maturity. Now, let, me, let me run through them quickly, what they are, and then we'll get into detail on the first one. The very first one, he says, of, of laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. That can be summed up in John chapter 3, verse 3, when Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. Folks, this is, is a summation of what we ought to believe with, in regards to our salvation doctrine. Now, I'm going to get into some more details about that here in a moment. So, the first foundation is salvation doctrine. The second one, if you'll notice, in the beginning of verse 2, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands. The, the technical term would be ecclesiology. This is the way the church should operate. The baptism. What, and, and the question we're going to answer is what is baptism? What is the purpose for baptism? Who should get baptized? When should they get baptized? Now, baptism is, let me say this, is outward evidence of an existing faith. Now, let me clarify that because faith does not exist in anyone until the Holy Spirit works in them. So baptism is a public profession of you saying that God has given me faith to believe the gospel and to follow Jesus. Now, it's seen in many churches. I don't know, I don't know if we do it here. We haven't baptized anyone yet. But usually baptism is an admittance into church membership, into that church. Now, what it is an admittance, well, it's, it's just a testimony of what God is doing in your life. So, baptism, we're going to answer that question, look at some details. And look, there are people that believe that you have to be baptized to be saved, but you don't. It's not something that you add to the gospel, as we'll see. If you add baptism to the work of Christ, guess what you've done? You've nullified the cross. You've nullified the work, the atoning work that Jesus has done. Now, thirdly, look, look what he says here at the end of verse 2. And of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And what is that? That could be our eschatology or end times summed up. There is going to be a resurrection and there is going to be eternal judgment. Now, we preach the gospel to prepare people and warn people to get ready for the final judgment. That's the purpose of the gospel, right? It is to preach and warn people. Now, people in our day are saying, don't be, don't be too offensive with that. Don't talk about judgment. Well, the cross itself is a sign of judgment. And here's the truth. Either your sins have been judged at the cross, or your sins will be judged forever in eternity in hell. Now, 
Then he goes on to say in verse 3, this we will do if God permits. You know who it is that gives the growth? As God gives the increase in salvation, as we preach the gospel, someone comes behind and waters, but it's God that gives the increase. So it is God that permits us to move on. Now, He's not going to permit us to move on if we stay stuck in doing the same thing over and over again. If we keep having to lay this foundation again. And basically that's what um, the author is saying. Is that in back in chapter 5, you keep having to be taught these things. At a time when you ought to be teachers, when you ought to be able to give uh, an account for what you believe, you're still having to be taught these same things. So that's where we're at. Now, I just kind of summed up what we're going to be covering for the next three weeks. And actually, we'll, be, we'll spend four weeks in these three verses. Now, let me, let, me, let me say this. The purpose of a warning, and that's what we're in the midst of right here in this verse. A warning of admonition is to bring attention to deficiencies in the life and beliefs of one who professes the name of Christ. In order, in other words, a, a, a warning is to bring about change in someone's life. Now you think about this. My, my dad didn't, my dad, I got my fair share of whippings, but there was times my dad spoke and that warning was enough. You know why? Because it brought about change in me and my two youngest brothers' lives, right? My mom had one thing to say. My, my dad was a rig mechanic. He chased them rigs. My, my, when my mom said, wait till your dad gets home, let me tell you, that was a, a, a time of heartache and a time of tribulation because we didn't know when dad was going to get home. But that warning served to correct behavior in us. And that's what this warning is to do. It's to correct. It's to bring about change. And folks, if we need anything in the church today, is we need to bring about change. Because we have been in a state of tranquility for so long that our faith is beginning to be tested. And there's people all around the world, all around the country, that are failing miserably. So let this be a warning to us that our faith should be strengthened. So this purpose for a warning or admonition is to bring attention to the deficiencies in the life and beliefs of one who professes the name of Christ. And really, what we ought to be doing is saying, God, am I living in accordance with my profession of faith according to the Scripture? Now, Again, let me give you a qualifier here. We don't do that perfectly, right? But that's what the part of examination is for, that we ought to constantly be saying, Lord, am I living according to your will? These, the, these warnings are in no way meant to mock or tear, down, uh, tear people down because of their stunted spiritual growth. You know, being a guy of about 6'4", 200 plus pounds, of course, you got to be careful when you do this. You make fun of short people, right? I mean, that, that's just what big guys do. We make fun of people that couldn't quite get as tall as we are. But that's not what admonitions are for. It's not to mock. It's not to make fun of those who have not moved on to maturity. It's to encourage you. Right? I, I, can't, I can't encourage someone to grow anymore. I can make fun of him, but I can't encourage him. But I can encourage you to grow, spiritually speaking. It serves as a call to be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. And Webster's defines slothfulness, as I talked about this, slothful obedience. It defines slothfulness as the indulgence of sloth. In other words, you're not just kind of lazy, you dove off, right? It's like having a big bowl of banana pudding 
And you don't just get your little bowl, right? You put your whole face into it and you just begin to. That's called indulgence. The indulgence of sloth, inactivity, the habit of idleness or laziness. Now, my, my, my history in the oil field, a lazy man didn't cut it, right? You're not going to cut it racking pipe back on a rig. You're not going to cut it. And I'll, and I'll tell you what I've learned about farm and ranch life, Brother James. A lazy man ain't going to cut it either. That's some hard work, folks. It's the same way with Christianity. There's no room for lazy people, folks. That our, our goal is to be like Christ. And therefore, we ought to be studying His Word to be like Him if He has affected this change in our life. Now, example I gave you in James about, uh, about this change is, uh, if you'll turn over to James chapter 1. And by the way, let me give you a little heads up. We're not quite halfway through Hebrews, but when we're done with Hebrews sometime this summer, we're going to move on to James. We're, we're going to see some real practical Christianity here. James chapter 1, verse 22, look what he says. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. See, it's easy to come into church, say amen to the preacher, and walk out saying, hey, I'm good to go. I gave the preacher a pat on the back. But you know what the greatest encouragement that a pastor receives from the people that God has allowed him to pastor? is to watch, watch each of you walk in obedience. To watch each of you walk in obedience to God's commands. James gives this illustration, look down to verse 27, about religion. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. To visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. That last part of that verse gets left off. Do you know what's key to your Christian growth? Keeping yourself unspotted from the world. Not being engrossed in the world's affairs and the world's, um, the allures of the world. Now James uses a, a picture of, of a mirror. Um, if you look at verse 23, For if any man be a hearer of the word and not a doer, uh, he is likened to a man beholding himself in a glass. Now, in those days they didn't have mirrors like we have today, so they had polished metal that they would lay down on a table and they would have to walk over and look at it and to see their face. Now, if you can imagine what it was like, to, you couldn't see all the blemishes. And so what he's talking about is someone who goes and looks at a mirror and walks away unchanged by what he sees. The comparison that he's making is that someone who sees themselves according to the perfect law of liberty and walks away unfazed and unchanged by the Word of God. In other words, just to say amen or assent to what the preacher or pastor has to say is not enough. You ought to be doers of the Word of God. These people, the, the Word confronts man internally and demands a response. And if you want to boil the gospel down, it's, it's this point. There is a call to repent and believe. There is a call to repent and trust in Jesus alone. Now here's an issue that we're faced with. Not specific to Valley View, but specific to the church in general. Is that there's a lot of folks who are playing church. Now, I would say this, that there are some who intentionally come to deceive. I know a guy that, uh, a friend of mine actually, that uh, uh, moved from Pampa down to another town in central Texas. He bought a, a funeral home. And 
he didn't see what church would, would, would feed him, spiritually speaking. He went to the church that was most beneficial to his business. In other words, he went to one of the largest churches in that area. Now, folks, that's playing church if you want to get down to it. That, that's playing church. But we, many have not done so intentionally. But they have done so because they have neglected to obey God's Word. You, you, you've read something and you're saying, oh, well, that, that, I'll do that on another day. Folks, my prayer for, for this particular passage of Scripture as we work through this is that you would see the need, but you would also see the urgency of our obeying the Word of God. So if you see on your outline, you see the, 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 the first point here. On, on building our principles for a, a growing in spiritual maturity. And the first principle is this. You must have a solid foundation. We talked about this last week, and I'll, I'll try to get through this um, without being uh, too repetitive. You must have a solid foundation. Now, what is that solid foundation built upon? It's built upon Scripture. It's built upon the Word of God. It's not built upon the words of Brian. It's not built upon the words of some other pastor or preacher or person. It's built upon the Word of God. Folks, this speaks to the ABCs or the fundamental elementary doctrines of the faith. The question that we need to consider is, did Jesus teach these three doctrines that I mentioned? And I think that's in your notes. If you want to take the time to read that later on, um, that would be great because Jesus speaks clearly on salvation John 3, 3 that I quoted, you must be born again. You must be born again. That's what Jesus said. And that word born again literally means to be born from above. And that speaks to what we believe about salvation. He, he spoke to the church and then that, that doctrine is fully developed. He spoke to end times. He said, I will come again. I'm coming back. I'm coming for you. Now last week I, I gave you a... Use the Baptist faith and message. And let me, let me say this for those of you that weren't here. Baptists have forever, since our inception practically, have been what's called a confessional people. In other words, we have a confession that is in line with the Scripture that we can summarize and say this is what we believe. And a modern day example of that for us is the Baptist faith and message 2000 that, I, that I'm going to quote here in a moment. But other, uh, other confessions that we can think of, if you're, if you're a historian, is going all the way back to the 1600s, the 1689 London Confession of Faith, which, by the way, you could trace our Baptist faith and message all the way back to that document there. Now, those documents in and of themselves do not carry authority. They do not carry inerrancy. They do not even carry sufficiency. But what they do is help us condense and con make concise what God's Word is, is saying and help us to understand it. Now last week I read from you the Baptist Faith and Message, what it says about salvation. And there was something that I didn't catch that I disagree with. And I just want to spend a couple of moments on this. So let me read the statement. Salvation involves the redemption of the whole man. I agree with that, right? When you get saved, all of you get saved. Your mind, your heart, your, your everything gets saved. It, it is redeemed by Christ and is offered freely to all who accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, I've got a problem with that phrase, but bear with me. 
who by his own blood obtained eternal redemption for the believer, agree, and it's brought a sense salvation includes regeneration, which we'll talk about, justification, sanctification, and glorification. There is no salvation apart from personal faith in Christ Jesus. Now you say, Pastor, why do you have a problem with that statement? Let me read it again. And it is offered freely to all who accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I don't have the problem with offered freely. I have a problem with accept. Now, let me, bear with me. Go to 2 uh, Corinthians chapter 5. <clears throat> and this is going to speak to our, 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 uh, what we've said last week and we'll say further this week about salvation. You there? All right. Wherefore, we labor that whether present or absent, we do what? That we may be accepted of Him. The reality of this is that we pray that we are accepted of Christ. Matter of fact, Ephesians 1.9, he says that you have been made accepted in the Beloved. And so you say, well, what is the distinction? Well, we'll see here in a moment, and we saw last week, that it speaks to our condition as a sinner. That Romans 3 says, you would not seek after Him. And so what we see salvation is that it is God that takes your heart of stone, as I've said many times before, puts the heart of flesh, puts His Spirit within you, so that the evidence of that is faith in Christ. Just a brief explanation. The utter depraved condition of man speaks to our sinfulness. We see in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned. Right? We were taught that from a little bitty fella. All have sinned. David said, and sin did my mother conceive me. As innocent and sweet as the, what's her name again? I'm sorry. Terrell. That's right. I knew it was something. As Terrell is, guess what? Her condition is what? Sinful. I've got a, a three grandbabies. And that youngest one, she is sweet as can be. But guess what? She's a sinner. She is in need of Jesus even at this stage. So this speaks to our condition. You say, well, why does that matter? Because if we begin salvation with man we end up downplaying our sinfulness. We don't see our sinfulness as God sees it. However, if we begin our belief of salvation with God, then we have to come to the conclusion that grace makes no sense. Why would God extend mercy and grace to people who hate Him? To people who violate His law? Brother James, I've been in church all my life and I'm still trying to comprehend grace. It makes no sense to me that God would look up and say, I'm going to save him. Matter of fact, I'm not just going to save him. I'm going to put him in the ministry. And I'm going to use him to herald this message of the gospel. Folks, that he would do that for you and I is absolutely amazing. The song Amazing Grace. By the way, if you don't know the background of John Newton and that song, you might want to do some study. That he would see grace so amazing that God would take a slave trader and redeem him and use him. Secondly, uh, the, the statement from uh, Baptist Faith and Message talks about regeneration. If you really want to get down to what to, to terminology that we can use to understand, this is what's called getting saved, right? 
This is called getting born again, if you will. In, in, in theology, it simply means the new birth by the grace of God. Let's go back to John 3.3. 3. Except a man be born again, he cannot see, he cannot understand, he cannot comprehend the kingdom of God. Now, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, chapter, 4, uh, chapter 2, verse 14, uh, that a natural man, that, that is the man who is unregenerate, the man who is lost in his sin, cannot understand the things of the Spirit. Why? Because they are spiritually discerned. So there's two conditions. One, you're either dead in your trespasses and sin, or two, you've been made alive unto God. So we see that regeneration. Um, and look, I, I, I'm, I'm begging you, go home and study these passages of Scripture. Now, and so you see there's this order that's taking place. One, there's our depravity. And look, you have to understand your life. I heard an old preacher say one time, you've got to get them lost before you can get them saved. I think it might have been D.L. Moody. I didn't hear him, but I heard somebody quote it. But nonetheless, you understand. For someone to see their need of Jesus, you, they need to understand their, de, their depravity. Matter of fact, John 16, 8 says, When the Spirit has come, He will convince of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. There's the gospel in a nutshell. That's the work of the Spirit. Now, the work of the Spirit is causing us to see our sin. Giving us that new heart, and what is the product of that? It's faith. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Why does God do it this way? Why does God get all the glory and salvation? So you and I wouldn't boast. I don't know about you, I can be a pretty prideful person. I guarantee you, if it was all up to Brian... I'd be taking as much credit as I possibly could rather than saying, praise be to God for His unmatchless, amazing grace. Then we move on to repentance. And let me just say this in regards to faith. We're not born with it. When someone says, put your faith in Christ, that's a lie, folks. We don't have faith to put in Christ apart from what God has given and the result of that is not just bowing your head and saying, Did Jesus save me? And getting baptized and going on as your life was before. That's not salvation. That might be turning over a new leaf. That might be becoming a more moral person. But that is not salvation. Look, what I want you to understand. Salvation is not always instantaneous. There's usually a process. I've heard testimony upon testimony of, of, of how people that, that God has saved, that it, it was a process and how God worked in their life. And if you even think about your life, yes, there was a moment that you come to realize that God had done something in you. But if you look back, you could say, man, I watched God work. Now I understand why this happened. Now I understand why that happened. And so, repentance. So, we move from our depravity on to regeneration, on to faith. Now we move on to repentance. What is repentance? This is a product of faith, understand. No natural man is going to repent of his sin that leads to a godly sorrow. Before God saved me, you know what? When I got caught doing something, I was sorry. Yeah, I was sorry because I got caught. I wasn't sorry because the Holy Spirit convicted me. Repentance is sorrow for anything done or said. The pain or grief which a person experiences in consequences of the injury or inconvenience produced by his own conduct. 
In other words, men, if we offend our wife to a point that we see how greatly it hurt her, maybe we say something with our tongue. And it just, it, we see what it has done to her. We repent because of the grief that we see and we feel over having hurt our spouse. By the way, if you, you don't feel that grief, you might want to ask God to help you with it. Another definition of repentance is real penitence. Sorrow or deep contrition for sin as an offense and dishonor to God. You know, most people don't see sin that way. They don't see sin as exactly what it is. It offends the law and the character and nature of God. It's a violation of His holy law and the basest and gratitude towards a being of infinite benevolence. Even as Christians, when we walk through these doors to come into the corporate gathering of worship and we've got sin on our heart, that is an, a grievance towards God. This is called evangelical repentance and is accompanied and followed by an amendment of life. True, genuine, biblical repentance will cause you to see your sin as an affront to God, as an offense to God. It will cause you to renounce that sin and it will cause you to look forward to God as the, as the sole object of your love and affection. That, my friends, is biblical repentance. It's not just saying, I'm sorry, I'll go to church more. I'm sorry, I'll watch my mouth more. No, it is a complete Turning. The, the illustration I used in Sunday school this morning could be seen in the marriage vows. When it said, forsaking all others, right? That we don't hold to any relationship in the past of a female or male. That we give our love and affection to our wife. We, that she is our object of love and care and desire, right? That we don't have desires for those, those others. That's what repentance is is that we're turning from our sin. We're turning from those things that hindered or, or was a wall between us and God. And that now we've turned to God as the sole object of our love and affection. And our life is lived to please Him and to bring honor to Him and to bring glory to Him. Some verses that are given is Matthew 3.8 if you will turn there. John is baptizing in the Jordan. And these venomous Pharisees come out to him. And, and look, let's back up to verse 1. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Hey, before Jesus came preaching, John is preaching, Hey, Jesus is coming back. You need to repent. Verse 2. Or verse 3, For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Look, 
Most scholars believe that John was out in the wilderness preaching, not in town preaching, and yet people were flocking to go see him. Think about that for a moment. Verse 4, And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and leather girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. Repentance and baptism go hand in hand, right? Now, verse, uh, verse 7. But when he, when he saw many of the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were the religious elite of the day. They were the ones who walked around in their, their, their clothing and all their things that were so religious and all that, and kind of maybe they might have held their hands like this looking down upon people. What he says, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Notice verse 8 in regards to repentance. Bring forth therefore fruits, meat for repentance. Let me tell you something. Your profession of faith in Christ and bringing evidence of repentance in your life go hand in hand. You cannot say, it, matter of fact, it would be a violation of Scripture to say with your mouth, I profess Christ as my Savior and go back to your old way of life. That, that's contradictory. That's not biblical salvation. Folks, repentance is the relinquishment of any practice from conviction that it has offended God. Let me get real personal for a moment. You got a problem with lust? You got a problem with looking at other women? You got a problem with looking at pornography? Repentance renounces that. Let me tell you, that's a bigger problem in the church than most people think. It's a bigger problem with pastors than most people think it is. You know what you're doing when you look at that stuff, whether you're a man or male or female? You're violating the covenant you're in with your spouse. You say, well, I ain't sleeping with her. Well, you're thinking about sleeping with them. May as well be. So what does repentance look like? You renounce that. You do what is necessary to get that out of your life and to turn to God. It is, and the questions we need to ask ourselves about anything is this. Has it violated God's law? You look at the Ten Commandments and it's real easy. Am I worshiping God as I should? And you go through those laws. And you think about your neighbor. Am I coveting something my neighbor has? And coveting it, am I looking at it with not just the desire to have it, but thinking that I deserve it more than my neighbor does? That's coveting. And coveting leads to some horrendous behavior. So for, has it violated God's law? Has it violated God's word? Is what, I, is what I'm doing violating God's word? Now repent. You understand repentance? You understand what I'm saying here? And folks, I hope you're beginning to see why this is vital. Why this is important. Now, fifthly, and we didn't get to this point last week. We didn't get to repentance last week. So we've got understanding depravity. The Spirit gives birth. Evidence by faith. Evidence by repentance of sin. And then evidence by good works. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. I can quote this for you, but I want you to see it. Ephesians chapter 2. 
Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Ephesians, I'm in Galatians. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says, For we are His workmanship. We are His workmanship. We are what He has produced, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. The purpose that He, he saves us is that we would give evidence of the salvation with, that He has brought upon us, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. See, where salvation begins with God. See, these obedience, this good works, is a product of God-given faith. You are not saved because of your good works. You do good works because you have been saved. The 1689 Confession of Faith that I talked about a while ago states this about good works. Good works are only those works that God has commanded in His Holy Word. Works that do not have this warrant are invented by people out of blind zeal or on a pretense of good intentions and are not truly good. Now, I want you to turn to Micah chapter 6. And I want to show you something real quick. God establishes what is good. He has that prerogative because He is the creator and sustainer of all things. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Now, this previous passage, Micah the the prophet is speaking to Israel. Look what he says in verse 8. He's talking about, well, let's back up to verse 1. Might as well. Hear ye now what the Lord saith. Arise, contend thou before the mountains, and let the hills hear thy voice. Hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy, and ye strong foundations of the earth, For the Lord had a controversy with His people, and He will plead with Israel. Now, this is an indictment against Israel. And what we'll see is that God upheld His end of the covenant, but Israel did not uphold their end of the covenant. Now, skip on down to verse 8 for the sake of time. He that showed thee, O man, what is good. What he's talking about is God has showed Israel what is good. And He lays it out in this verse. And what doth the Lord require of thee? What is required of Israel to do? Do justly. What that was talking about is not taking property from people who were poor. People who could not, uh, uh, maybe didn't have what you had and you wanted to gobble up as much land as you see. Do justly. He he goes on to say, love mercy. When you think of mercy this way, it, it causes us to want to show mercy towards others. You know what mercy is? It's God looking upon sinful man and having pity towards us. That God would look upon us and, and look at us in our helpless, sinful state and feel pity. And then do something by sending His Son. Amen? Now, He said, love mercy. And by the way, no one has offended you to the point that you have offended God and yet God showed mercy to you. So how much more then should we show mercy towards one another? 
No matter what they what can do for one another, we can extend mercy. Goes on to verse 8. And walk humbly before God. Or walk humbly with your God. Humility is having a right estimation of oneself. In other words, you understand who you are and what God has done by extending grace. I don't want to get into all the gory details of Micah. Maybe we'll do that for another time. But I encourage you to do some research. I do want to say this, though. Fundamental to Micah's proclamation of both judgment and restoration are the terms of the covenant relationship between God and His people. And I think this is where we, our understanding of Israel goes wonky. Is that we don't understand covenants. We don't understand that God upheld His end of the covenant and like us, Israel disobeyed God. We're prone to wonder as the song says. While God faithfully fulfilled His responsibilities under the covenant, the people wallowed in disobedience. What is the, what is the testimony of Israel throughout the, whole, the, the Old Testament? Why did they go to Babylon? Because they disobeyed God and what He said to do about the Sabbath. Why did God bring judgment and use so many prophets to pronounce judgment upon Israel? Because they couldn't obey Him. The people mistakenly assumed that outward... Listen closely. The people mistakenly assumed that outward ritual observances could replace true heart allegiance. Now the covenant curses were to be applied. In other words, they were playing church and God wasn't. Playing church will not cut it. Now, let me say this about good works and I'll close. These good works are done in obedience to God's commands and they are the fruit of and evidence of a true and genuine and living faith in God. And they are determined by the Word of God. I said a moment ago, and I'll close with this. As I was thinking about this passage this week, two things came to my mind that came from this thought. Two things that greatly grieve a pastor. I'm not going to say this to guilt anyone. I just want want you to see a pastor's heart. And if you remember, about a year ago, I told you there's some churches that want preachers, but they don't want pastors. And folks, a pastor will shepherd you and guide you into the truth with the help of the Holy Spirit. Will preach the full counsel of God. Pastors will weep over you and weep with you. And and, and even uh, uh, serve in whatever capacity. And if, if this last year has done anything to me, it has frustrated me in knowing exactly how to minister. It's, it, it's a frustration that, that I've had to deal with. But nonetheless, two things that will grieve, greatly grieve a pastor. And this is all said in regards to this following God and obedience and producing works or meat, fruit worthy of repentance. Number one is no salvations. Not seeing people come to know Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying that's your fault. Don't don't hear me out on this. I'm not saying that's your fault. But not seeing any salvation. You realize in a year, and I don't know previous to that, Brant, James, and Scott, when, when the last person was baptized. That grieves me. But secondly, is no visible fruit from professing Christians. That's a reality that that every pastor faces. Now, 
Those are two grievous things for a pastor. But they're tied to two questions that a pastor will ask himself. Basically, three questions. Am I preaching the full counsel of God with clarity? In other words, are my sermons easy to understand? Or, or on a level where you can understand them, that, that you can grow? And even with the, in regards to the gospel, is the gospel clear in the sermon? Secondly, is there sin in my life that would hinder the work of the Holy Spirit? Well, I'm, I'm, just, I'm being honest with you. This is what I struggle with. And then second, and then thirdly, am I totally surrendered to God or is there something I'm holding on to? I mean, that, and for every one of us, that's why we must make a daily examination of our life and our heart and our mind. But here are two truths that I try to cling to. Ultimately, God is sovereign over and God is sovereign in salvation. So my prayer is I pray that His will be done. What Paul say? I watered, I planted, Apollos watered, but who gives the increase? It's God, right? I, look, what can I do? I can preach the gospel. I can preach the full counsel of God, but I've got to rely on God to give the increase. So what do we do? We pray to that end. And I countless prayers are spent on your children. Countless prayers are spent on others that I know and I don't know if they're Christian. And then the last truth. Each Christian must work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. I can preach to you the Word of God. I can tell you what God's Word has to say. But I have no right to demand upon you how to live your life. That's something you've got to do. That's part of this maturity. Working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And it begins with this. Am I, have I genuinely been saved? Has God genuinely done a work in my life? And, and if you're saying, I'm not sure, you know what you need to do? You need to go home and fall on your face before God and beg Him for mercy. Beg Him to save you. I can't save you. I'll pray with you. I'll pray for you. But I ultimately cannot save you. That is something that God has to do in your life. We're not going to close with a song, Brother Brant. I want to ask, as a matter of fact, I'm going to ask you to pray for us. We're going to close out this morning with a prayer. Folks, go home and study these things. Think on these things. Meditate upon these things. Pray. Ask God to grow you in the faith.